Hello, this is Scott Gordon, head coach for the Philadelphia Flyers. You're listening to Snow the Goalie. Welcome back in to Snow the Goalie, the people's podcast, the player's podcast, the personnel podcast, and, oh, of course, Anthony, the only Flyers podcast. I'm Russ Joy. You can find me on Twitter at Joy on Broad, and I'm joined, as always, by my lovely, happy, always excited to be here co-host, Anthony Sanfilippo, who you can find on Twitter at AntSanPhilly. Anthony, we had a, a heck of a week, and, we uh, and we are recording this part of our show coming off the... Uh, overtime thriller that the Flyers put on Saturday uh, afternoon against the Detroit Red Wings. And uh, there were some interesting quotes that came out of that game that we'll get to a little bit later on in the show. But of course, the main reason that everybody's here, thousands of listeners have tuned in to hear our exclusive sit down, a 40 minute interview with Flyers coach Scott Gordon. Yeah, and it was a great interview. Um, uh, Occurred before the game on Saturday. Um, Because we're going to talk about some things that Scott Gordon said after the game on Saturday, so uh, that's that's uh, important to understand. Uh, after you listen to this interview with him, um, we're going to really dive into something um, that's really going to be taught. I think should be the key story coming out of this game. Uh, I don't know how many people are going to really focus on it, um, but I I think, and I know you agree with me, that it is the primary story from uh, today uh, or Saturday. Uh, un- unexpected uh, comments. Um, made from, about a player that we've talked about multiple times. Yeah, about uh, a, but made by a player. The comments came from the player first, and then Scott Gordon second, which was... Um, it was interesting. Definitely, definitely interesting stuff. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll dive into that. But I, I think that, you know, we've been teasing this interview with Scott Gordon on the Press Row Show, on Twitter... Um, for a while now, a lot of people that are, are excited to listen to it because we promised everyone it was a really good interview. Um, and, and Scott Gordon is great. I mean, he's a, he's a great interview. He's, he's very easygoing. He's a fun guy to talk to. Plus, he knows a little bit about this game. And just a little. Just a little bit. Um, so, really, really good guy. So, uh, I, I hope you guys enjoy this interview and then check back with us uh, afterwards. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about what he, some of the things he said and then really dive into what happened against the Detroit Red, Red Wings on Saturday. And Flyers won an overtime 6-5. to five. With no further ado, here we go. Enjoy the interview with Scott Gordon. Welcome into the Snow the Goalie podcast. Uh, Russ, we have yet another goalie, former goalie. This will be the third current or former goalie we've had join the show. Flyers coach Scott Gordon. I'm sure he's probably, just like the other guys, not happy with the name of our show, calling it Snow the Goalie. Right, Scott? <laughs> Well, uh, it must be a uh, highly intelligent show if you can have all those goalies on. <laughs> well, we really appreciate you, you coming on. Um, you come on at a really a great time. I mean, the Flyers are uh, 11-2-1 in their last uh, 14 games, really playing well. Um, I, I guess the first question I wanted to ask you is, you know, when you look back at the, earlier in the season, I, I think about a month ago, a little over a month ago, you guys were dead last in the league, um, 16 points out of a playoff spot. Since then, 11-2-1, that's pro- that's, I went and looked. It's the best stretch that you've had as a coach at the NHL level. So did you have a feeling at that time when it was as low as it could be that this team could get on a run, like maybe not 11-2-1, but could get on a good enough run to kind of get back into things and play at the level that they're playing at? 
I think uh, when we got back from the Washington game, um, you know, I, I, I looked at a lot of different things, but I, I thought we were I thought we were really top heavy with our lines. Um, G and Coots were playing together, and they were you know doing what they needed to do. But uh, I just felt like there was a, a kind of a hole in our lineup, and not being able to pr produce offensively, and the power play wasn't going well. So we, we really didn't have a whole lot of power play time. And I, when I started to look at the things that we could do differently, one of them was lines and, and then talked about changing some things up on the power play. Um, we've, we followed that game up with Washington with a, a pretty good game. And um, there was a point where we, we had two games in a row where we were down 2 nothing early in the game. And one of the games I called a timeout and um, the other game I didn't call a timeout. And one of the things that had been going on pretty regularly is every time we got scored on, it seemed like we were getting scored on right away. And we were digging ourselves a hole early in games, and, and our response wasn't very good. And it was almost like we felt the need to win the game in the next shift. And that was something that, uh, it's you know, the, the low point was Washington, where I thought we had played a really good first period. Um, the game was close. It was 2-1, and we gave up a goal in the next, you know, before it was 3-1 before you, you know, uh, blinked an eye. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I talked to the players about is we, we've got to identify that the game is, n is not over after we get down by two. Like, we don't have to win the game. We can't win the game the next shift. We've got to play it out. And uh, our guys have been really consistent with that. Uh, since that time, and, and we've seen it uh, a few times where we've, like the other night, we were down three to one, and it, you know it took us uh, over 40 minutes to come back into that game, but we found a way and did it in regulation, and and that's how it's uh, pretty much gone through the stretch. Yeah, it's been it's been great. One of the things, you know, I know you've talked about at the very beginning, you didn't really have the time because there were so many games in a row, you really didn't have the practice time to really make any changes um, as far as systematically, right? Um, but what, you know, it does seem that the team has gotten better. I mean, Goaltending helps, obviously, with Carter playing as well as he is, but it does seem the team got better defensively in front of him as well. I mean, there's still mis there, hockey's a game of mistakes, so there's always going to be mistakes, right? But there, it just seems that you've cut down on them. Has there been something that you implemented systematically there that has made that a little bit easier that the guys have really bought into? Yeah, so we, we've, you know, pecked away at our defensive zone coverage and in, in, in trying to establish as getting away from man-on-man -man and, and playing more zone. And um, the biggest thing is protecting the middle of the ice. And, you know, sometimes we'll give up uh, more shots than you'd like to give up, but... Um, we were also getting more block shots, which means we're in the right places. Um, the other thing that we did uh, after, well, actually it was the week before the All-Star break where we had a couple practices, is we implemented a, a different neutral zone four check. And that was the first opportunity. When I, when I first got the job, if there was one thing I would have liked to have done right from the get-go was that. But we just, I think I had two practices in the first couple weeks. Right. And, it, and in the middle of that was a Christmas break. So... Uh, we were also on the road, so there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to do it. And then when we finally did get an opportunity, uh, right before the All-Star break, we had that week where we had two practices. And the first part of working the neutral zone forecheck was the breakout, and then the face-offs, then the dump-outs, and then the changes. And so each each phase was implemented with each day of practice. One might have been pregame skate. And so... We went into a game on, I think it was a Tuesday, and we started with the face-off. And then we went into the game against uh, Montreal with everything. But um, we ended up getting outshot 12-1 in the first period. So there were some wrinkles that we didn't have the benefit of getting more practice time in 
that uh, <clears throat> as the game progressed, we we ironed out and um, and then since then, you know, we've we've gotten to the point where I think the guys are comfortable with it and you know just made it a little bit harder for teams to get through the neutral zone on us. Does it make it easier? Uh, in the transition from the AHL, like I, I kind of want to go through the entire process in, in a sense because it feels like the idea of, of coming up from the AHL, something not that I, I'm assuming you didn't expect to have happen in the beginning of the season was that midway through the year you would be called upon to, to lead this team forward. What does that look like from, from your vantage point? I mean, it, it felt like it was a really quick decision. It seemed like maybe the organization wasn't necessarily in, in the frame of mind of like doing the move the day that they did it. But you managed to come in and, and right the ship. What does this look like for you when you're with Lehigh Valley? You get the f- the phone call that you're you're now in charge for the remainder of the season. Like, what does that look like for you? I well, I first of all, I never expected it. Um, I was pretty convinced by the media that Joel Quenville was coming <laughs> one, <laughs> and two, um, you know, I I, I had no um, relationship with uh, Chuck Fletcher, so I I, I couldn't even have said that. Uh, you know, there was even there was no conversation with anybody about uh, coming up here to coach, and particularly when there's a new GM, you would think uh, you know that there's probably a good chance that he has somebody that you know from his previous previous experience that he would bring in. And you know, as it turned out, um, I, I did get the call, but it was literally the first conversation I had was um, as I was going out for practice on that Monday at uh, 5 to 12 and and then after practice we just confirmed everything and uh, so it was literally an, an hour before um, uh, an hour before I made the decision is when I found out so um, you know it's not I, I honestly I was thrilled with my job in Lehigh I, I, I love being coaching the American League and, and getting players to develop and play in the NHL um, I have a passion for that and um, you know, I was in no rush to get to the NHL. If it happened, great. If it didn't, I was content with what I was doing. And and uh, so when you get here, you don't know what to expect. And um, i got to say it's been better than I anticipated. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that you didn't necessarily find yourself in a rush to get back to the NHL level. Because it, it, from the outside, it would seem like if you have had experience at the NHL level as a head coach, that you'd be chomping at the bit to get back. What was it about, the, about coaching at the NHL you just said about – um, developing players, but like, is that really the thing? Is is getting these guys when they come in pretty raw and, and trying to to get them to hone their skills so they can make that that jump up? Is that validation for you when you do get a guy to develop that he gets the call up? Like, is is that the real draw? Yeah, it's a completely different animal. So like, I my experience of being a head coach in the NHL was not the most enjoyable experience. So it wasn't like I was in a rush to get back to that. Um, as it turns out, with me getting the job with the honors and getting this job. I had the same approach, just do your job um, uh, in the American League, whether it was Providence or Lehigh. Um, don't worry about what might happen, just worry about the task at hand. And if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. If, it, if I never coached in the NHL again, I, I wasn't going to lose sleep over it. I, you know, I had my, my opportunity. Um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of different things as a coach, including uh, being part of the Olympics, World Cup of Hockey, World Championships. and. Um, so I, I've gotten a taste of everything. Been an assistant in the NHL, and um, you know the, you know for me the the part that's been the most rewarding as a coach has been coaching in the American League. I, I can't really say that my experience in the NHL, both in Long Island and, and uh, Toronto, was um, something that I found rewarding. I didn't get that. Um, you know, when the year's over, you look back on it and you say, "Wow, this was a great experience." 
So, you know, I've had a lot of years coaching the American League where I could say that. And, um, you know, this year has been entirely different than what I went through in Toronto as an assistant and head coach in New York. So, um, you know, it, it's actually made me probably more hungrier to be a, uh, coaching the NHL because it's been such a good experience. And, and that was, I was going to just ask yeah, that okay. same question. And that was, I mean, I, I, you know, I, you could see, you know, just by talking to you and, and how passionate you are about breaking down what happens in a game or what happens on a specific play, you can almost see that there is there is that, wow, this is this is a different situation now. This is a different level for you. And it, I'm, I was going to ask you, and you just said it, but I mean, looking moving forward, it's almost like, you know, okay, well, if I have to go back to the AHL, I would, but now I kind of like it up here. Maybe maybe this is ultimately where I, I should be long-term. I mean, time will tell as far as that goes, but, um, you know, at the same time, I, I went into my first head coaching job uh, having tons of coaching experience, but not NHL experience. And the, the day-to-day task, um, you know, at times was overwhelming. Um, I didn't do a very good job of delegating. Um, I, I didn't, I underestimated the schedule and how busy it was and you know the importance of rest and and how to maximize uh, your practices as far as in getting everything that you need to do but doing it in a manner that allows you to get through it in 30 minutes versus an hour and 15 minutes um, and then you know to, to start off with our number one goalie when I got the job everyone said you don't have to worry about goaltending you've got the, one of the best goalies in the league he played five games for us my first year, and we had two guys that were um, up till that point had not been in the NHL, yeah. and we went the whole season pretty much with them. And then on top of that, we had uh, over 580 man games of injuries, so there was a lot of hurdles that um, you know you you you're left to do a lot of second guessing um, that you shouldn't have to do. You know, not having a true number one goaltender, um, not having um, your full lineup uh, for almost the whole season and um, as a result you you start micromanaging you start trying to you know try to fix things that probably for other teams is common it happens uh, but they are they're getting you know their number one goalie to, to save them or win them a game um, you, they're getting more of that or you've got that uh, depth at center that uh, you know we had you know we didn't have like I, every time we played Philadelphia you had Richards Carter and um uh, Giroux, and you're you're throwing out uh, an 18-year-old rookie and John Tavares, who's you know just learning the league and who's physically not as strong as he's going to be, and uh, you know the the other centers are you know Josh Bailey, who's at that time he's a I think 19 years old, he's, yeah. he's a second-year pro, and so there was a lot of um, challenges that way that uh, I certainly wasn't prepared for, and um, you know having the experience of not only just being a head coach in the NHL, but also going back and being assistant and seeing how other head coaches do it and how other teams do things. Um, both were learning experiences that uh, have, have made the transition coming here easier. I, I, it was, I had forgotten. I, uh, I covered the Phantoms in 0405, the year of the lockout, which was you know, ar- you know, arguably the best season the AHL's mm-hmm. probably ever had talent-wise. Um, and I forgot that you were the Providence coach at that time, and uh, Providence played the Phantoms in the uh, Eastern Conference final that year. Um, you guys upset Manchester, I think, first, and then Lowell mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in the second round. Um, you had a 19-year-old Patrice Bergeron on that team. Obviously, we've seen the kind of player that he's become in the NHL. When you see Sean Couturier playing, 
do you see that similarity? I mean, he's been compared to him so many times, mm. but we're media people. Like, we don't, you know, we don't know hockey like hockey people know it. So we say it, and we write it, and we just and everybody assumes it's gospel. Do you see the comparison between those two? For sure. I mean, yeah. Both are 200-foot players. Um, the uh, And this is no knock against uh, Coots because I, I think he's a, a, a tremendous player, great character. Um, but Patrice Bergeron is at a whole different level above everybody in the entire National Hockey League with um, the quality of person that he is and what he brings to a team. He's just so selfless. Yeah. And anything, like I, I'll, I'll tell you a story. We were, um, we were, uh, we got knocked out by, by Toronto, I mean, sorry, Boston. And uh, he ends up getting three goals and I think an assist and, and a 5-4 win that they had in overtime. And uh, they did an interview with him after the game. And they're talking to him about his three goals and his assist. And, and uh, they said, you know, how did you do it? And not once did he say, I. It was all we, the team. Everything that he said was just, um, just a great team effort. And we did what we had to do. And um, it wasn't easy. And we stuck with it. And, you know, then we go through the handshake line in what, you know, probably was... Um, the uh, probably the, the one of the greatest moments of his career to be able to, you know, basically put your team on your back and take them from a four-one potential loss with ten minutes to go in the game and win it in overtime. As we're going through the handshake like line, we just happen to be the last two people, and he's saying to me, "Thank you for all you did for me when I was in Providence." He's not even like here. It is probably my worst moment. Yeah, and then he's like. You know, basically give me a pat on the back that, you know, like, like took me away from what actually just happened, and like, you know, what a great thing for him to say. Right. And um, you know, that doesn't uh, that doesn't happen all the time. And and uh, so anyway, I, I kind of ramble on here, but uh, as far as um, you know, what Patrice does on the ice and what Coots do on the ice, very similar, and how they're um, able to win faceoffs, kill penalties, have an impact on the power play, make the players around them better doesn't matter who they play with and, and you see tons of that with uh, Coots and, and Berge. When you're working with, with guys at the AHL level, I, I, I do wonder this because you, you said that practice time was so limited. Guys that you had coached and then when you're trying to implement wrinkles to your system, did you find it was almost like a, like a flipped shared leadership that you had with guys who had played within your system uh, with the Phantoms, that when you were trying to implement that in practice, like were some of the concepts that you were putting in something that were so unique to what you had done at the AHL level that guys like Travis Sanheim, other guys that you would coach at that level, almost had a better idea of what your expectations were and, and took on leadership as young players, almost kind of coaching the vets? Would that be a fair way to say it? Or Yeah, I'm sure there was um, you know, instances where, you know, where there was uh, tweaks in the penalty kill where, you know, oh, yeah, I remember we did that. Um, Phil Verone's actually been a guy in the shooting drills. Like he knows what's going on because he's done the drills so much that he's often the first guy in line. So right away that makes a difference. <laughs> At least the the drill's going to start off right. It might you know we might have to uh, stop it and, and adjust. But uh, you know I, I think anytime there's familiarity with the coach and, and the players, it, it makes the, the process easier. They can they can be in a line and ask a question without you know having to stop the whole practice. So it, it, it's been advantageous. I I do have one question, and, and this, I think, is, is a compliment to you that players have said it so much. In scrums after games, the, the meticulous detail that you'll break down a guy's game 
has come up from vets and from younger players. I mean, it's it's been across the board. I think JVR in at least three games, three availabilities, has brought up a conversation that the two of you had of you going macro concept of what you were expecting within the system and then specifically how he fits in. And, and that seemed like that was the catalyst to get him turned around. But other players have talked about the fact that you've broken down their game in the most minute detail and how helpful that's been. And since I'm the same age as a lot of your players, I know that typically our generation, as Anthony likes to put it, don't like to be criticized or critiqued. I find the fact that they say it in such a positive way is, is really an anomaly. It, it speaks to something that you're doing really well. What is it that, that you hope to get out of breaking plays down like that and breaking down an individual guy's game? Because it, it doesn't sound like they've experienced it in, to the level that you've done it. I thought you were going to ask me to, to break down your uh, interview. <laughs> <laughs> you could do that, too. We could, that would be fun, actually. <laughs> uh, no, you know what? I, I, uh, I used to bring in guys, and I'd show them the video and say, this is what you got to do. And, All right, get out of here. We're done, right? So I, um, I actually saw – I read a book, and then I saw a uh, TED Talk, and, and I was just telling somebody about this the other day. And uh, it's, uh, his name is Simon Sinek. And – he talks about millennials. So for the longest time I coached and it was always, um, you know, I told them what we were going to do and we just did it, right? And uh, so I watched this video and uh, he has, he draws this circle and there's, there's three components to it. Um, one is the what and one is the, um, the why, uh, no, sorry, the how, and then the core is the why. And you know what is what we're going to do. The how is you know whether it's a drill or video, whatever that we're going to teach it. But the most important part that he talked about was the why. Like, why are we doing this? So when I when I talk to the players, I I try to keep that in mind, especially in the video sessions, because I don't want it to be um, look at. I need you to go to this spot right here. I want them to know why they should go to that spot. How it's going to benefit them. And whether it's a defenseman and how he breaks out the puck, whether it's a forward that's going on the rush and is instead of going to the middle of back post is going to the strong side post, just trying to explain the advantages for them so that hopefully you know we, we have common ground and they can see the value in it like I see the value. I always saw the value in what I taught, right. but I, I finally figured out it's important to let the players or at least give the players a chance to be able to understand why it should be important to them they might not ultimately agree or they might sometimes they'll even bring up a point that I didn't even think about and um, you know like I had a conversation with Jake and he was covering for a defenseman and he went in on the play um, and he was saying to me he like he made up a good point he said you know I'm as an offensive guy I know that if somebody comes at me just being rushed, I might not make as good a play. And I said, I said that's a good point. I said, do the same thing, but instead of going towards their net, go towards our net, and you do what you want to do, and you're covering what we need you to do for the team to be successful so that we're not giving up an odd man rush. And so you're talking with them as opposed to at them. Right. And that's the big difference with millennials. Well, with, well, no. considering the job that I, I'm a teacher, so I, <laughs> I, I feel your pain in a, in a, in a way. In a way. Some of this. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there really has been. It's a paradigm shift in, in, how, um, you, in how you have to go about yeah. educating. So I, I, I get where you're at. So you're a Brockton kid. Easton. Easton. Yeah. 
Oh, not Brockton. I'm, I'm sorry. If there was a research. hospital in Easton, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We're <laughs> oh, born in Brockton. Gotcha. I grew okay. up in Easton. Easton. All right, fair enough. So was BC like an automatic? Was that something like you grew up when you were playing, when you were young, and you're like, oh, I got to go to BC. That's the hockey program I want to be with. Or was it a, was there a toss-up? Were you like BUBC kind of thing? It's definitely staying in New England. Yeah, you know? I, I – I think the whole college thing, like I, I was fortunate because I grew up in the same town as uh, Jim Craig. Right. So he, he went to BU. I played with his uh, brother, my father, Coach Jim. So he was somebody that I, I had in front of me. Like when he was playing high school hockey, Oliver Ames was the high school, and they had big rival, rivalry with uh, Randolph and Canton. And Randolph had Rod Langway, and I, I can't remember. Canton had some, some pretty good players. But anyway – they played in front of 2,000 fans for high school hockey, at, and at that time that was huge. And so that was something I wanted to do. Then he ended up going to BU and, and uh, playing there. And, and so, you know, I, I remember uh, to this day my, my mother telling me that, uh, you know, the way you're playing at your age, if you don't smoke, you know, maybe one day you might be able to get a scholarship and go play college <laughs> hockey. And I, I literally didn't smoke because that's what my mother told me, and I believed her. So... Um, Anyway, I uh, I as it I started going through the process of going to high school, and then schools were starting to show interest in me. I, I really didn't know where I wanted to go. Um, one of my father's friends was a, a BC alumni, and he used to he used to talk to me. All, oh, you got to go to BC. You got to go to BC, and and um, I, I didn't know anything about any of the schools. And then I eventually, you know, you get you start to get recruited, and I I, I probably heard from I think it was like maybe thirty seven. Um, Division one schools. I, I probably heard from twenty of them. Okay. And so I immediately I the things that I looked at were I thought I wanted to be in Boston. I thought I wanted to play in the Bean Pot. Um, I also wanted to go to a school that had a uh, that would give me a good education. And um, and then I had an outside school that I looked at. So it came down to um, I looked at my, my final four was it was Notre Dame, UNH, uh, BC, and Harvard. And um, so when the when, education wasn't the important thing then, right? Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, would have been yeah, Harvard yeah. otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> Not the, what are you trying to say? No, what are you trying a great to say? School. It's a Jesuit school. I'm a Jesuit uh, guy, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. absolutely. So anyway, we, uh, <laughs> you know, the, when it was all said and done, um, the bean pot in playing in Boston that was probably the, the final decision. Yeah. At that time, it was put to me: if you go to Harvard, um, you know, you'll be. The alumni is everywhere throughout the United States. If you stay in Boston, you think you're going to you know, live your life in Boston, then there's a great alumni that stay in Boston, and that would help you career-wise. Yeah. Um, at that time, it was just more about uh, wanting to go to BC after I saw the campus. I was, I, 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 that was something that – it was pretty much black and white. And while you were there – this is something that Russ didn't know about before today. Zach, we talked to Zach, the PR guy. He didn't know about it before today. You were the first goalie to ever put a water bottle on top of the net so you didn't have to constantly skate over to the bench anytime you needed a drink. Now, the, I saw it in a book that said hockey first, and it said... And you have that, to trust books. Yeah, you got to trust the book. It said in the book that it was you and Chris Terreri in a game, uh, playoff game against Providence. Um, and from what we understand now, from just before the show, you say that eh, maybe not be might not be completely true. Yeah, so we came off of uh, Christmas break, and uh, we went to play North Dakota in North Dakota, and uh, they had a really good team. And uh, so the first night uh, we played, uh, I, I had I don't know, I think like forty-five shots, and there was no TV timeouts there, so you, the trips to the bench 
uh, other than a delay penalty, you weren't going to the bench. Right. And the only time you could hydrate was in between periods. So um, at that time, um, sports science uh, <laughs> was not around to tell me that drinking multiple cans of Diet Coke before the game and getting all this caffeine in me probably wasn't going to be advantageous to me being able to get through a game. So uh, uh, my trainer suggested, you know what, you're cramping up. This is after the second period. Um, you might you might want to take a water bottle and some Gatorade uh, and put it on your net. So um, I did that, and then the ref comes over, and he's like, you can't do that. I said, you're not allowed to have a water bottle on your net. I said, I need to. I'm, I'm cramping up. He goes, well, you can't have two. And I go, one's Gatorade and one's water. He said, all right, well, okay. So, so from that point on, um, I still didn't get the message about the Diet Coke, so I just kept putting the Gatorade. I kept cramping, and, and uh, you know, that's uh, that was something that just stayed with me, uh, you know, for the rest of my playing days. Were you surprised that it kind of took off, that, like, everybody started doing it after a while? I, I didn't even – it didn't even register. I, you know, I was just – doing it out of necessity more than anything else you know my, my uh, son's a goalie at holy cross and uh he doesn't even have a water bottle in his net so wow okay he needless to say he doesn't drink diet soda, <laughs> so he doesn't need it as bad as i did yeah but you got like, we, we went back yeah, into uh into the old nhl video games and i think the earliest that we could find 2000 there were no water bottles on the back it was 2004 it was the first it looked like they... the first time that they put it but the only time that the farthest that we could track back was 06 was the first time somebody could actually knock the goalie's uh, water bottle off yeah. the net. So I believe. Uh, so there you go. You got a lasting legacy in uh, video game folklore. Yeah. I believe uh, uh, Bob Froze was the first NHL goaltender to do it. Okay. Was that here? Did he do it here? Or did yes, he do it in the I, I believe so. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It was right around the time that we did it, um, but I, I don't remember the exact date. Cool. A um, couple other things because we don't want to keep you all day. Uh, you got to you got an opportunity to play in the Olympics, Team USA '92 in Alberville. Even though you guys didn't medal, what was that experience like? And did you have an opportunity to like march in the um, opening or closing ceremonies? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. We we marched right beside George Steinbrenner, and he was with the hockey team. And um, that part was a, a the, the show that they put on was tremendous. And uh, and then we were uh, we got to the final four. We needed to win one game to win a medal, and we ended up losing the Czechs. Uh, we lost to Russia, who um, that was in the semis. We lost five two. It was two two going to the third. And uh, they had five power plays, and they had some NHL talent on that team. Um, and then we lost the uh, the uh, consolation game. So, but uh, the whole experience was there's no, there's been nothing that has compared to it. You you don't realize it like you you see the miracle and Jim Craig and all that. Uh, so I I obviously was a little bit closer to that because of the fact he was from my hometown, and uh, I. I remember uh, so clearly when we walked out down the hallway and we were about to go on the ice, you could, you, you know, you're in Albertville, France, and you don't know that there's going to be a lot of people from the U.S. there. And I, I, it had to be close to, I think it was a 7,000-seat arena. There had to be 6,000 U.S. fans. Wow. And so you come out, and uh, I remember clear as day, the, the fans chanting USA, the flags, the, the painted faces. Um, and that, it was just like gave you chills, you know, yeah. and and so uh, you know that whole whole part of it, and the fact that you know we had a good run, 
it was just a tremendous experience. Yeah, and it, because 1980 was still f- really fresh in people's minds. Yeah, it was only 12 years yeah, yeah, yeah. later, right? That's that's pretty cool. Um, have you ever had an opportunity? To, I mean, we've got the outdoor game coming up uh, next weekend. Have you ever had an opportunity to play in one or be in, or coach in one? I'm sh- outside of shinny hockey. Yeah, you know, the, uh, the big house uh, with Toronto and Detroit. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty cool experience. It was so cold, I can't say. It, it was beyond cool. It was cold. <laughs> but let's hope you don't have that kind of weather, yeah. that, that kind of weather here next week. Um, one of the other things that we kind of have been asking guys when we have uh, players come on or, or whatever, um, we, we've asked about your favorite arenas that, that you've grown up in. Now, we talked on the um, podcast, the one over at Xfinity Live, you mentioned we talked a little bit about Johnstown and, and some fun stuff from there. But any others, I mean – you got to play in, like, Knoxville and Nashville. I mean, Nashville before it was in NHL City. Atlanta before it was in – well, it was in NHL City, but then it wasn't, and then it was, and now it's not again. Um, but, like, any other places, Halifax, I mean, you coached in Quebec and Norfolk. I mean, I've been into the Scope. That's kind of a wacky arena mm-hmm. down there. Like, any any place that really sticks out to you, and it, it's like, well, this is a – just based on the fans, you know, maybe the, yeah. the fun stuff with them. Well, Johnstown, obviously, just because of the history of uh, – the movie Slapshot, that right. was pretty unique. I sat in Reg Dunlop's seat in the locker room. Uh, Steve Carlson was my coach, yeah. so that gave it a little extra flavor. Um, I remember in Nashville, when I was playing in Nashville, they had, uh, there was like a, not a concourse, but there was a, where people went either to the lower bowl or the upper bowl, they had this runway that went around, and every time there was a fight, they played uh, Garth Brooks' uh, Friends in Low Places. <laughs> And uh, the mascot, along with all the kids, would run around as that song was being played. And there's a flag, I'm pretty sure. But that was, uh, you know, that was something different that you don't get to experience. Um, but I, I, growing up in Boston, the old Boston Garden was, yeah. you know, a pretty neat place to to be in. Uh, you know, I used to, I obviously didn't play there as a in a home game, but I played a couple college games there, and that was something that was always special as a kid growing up. You know, one of the things that my father, when uh, I was a kid, we when I played as a freshman in high school, we we lost in the uh, we didn't make it to the state tournament. So I I asked him if we could go see the state tournament. So we went to the the semifinals and the finals. It was in the Boston Garden. It was sold out. And I was like, geez, I, I would love to do this. This thirteen thousand fans and and so my uh, junior year we went to the we played the quarterfinal and the semifinal in the Boston Garden, and that wow. was. Like for me, that was like a highlight. That uh, you know, it's a little more common now. I mean, kids do it at, all the time now, little, right? You know, go yeah. play with mini mini mites or whatever. Uh, so that was that was something that was a, a real special thing to do as a kid. Is is there ever like a moment as a coach? Is there an arena that you walk into? Obviously, we'll take Wells Fargo Center out of it. Philadelphia best fans, the whole thing. When you is there an arena that you walk into as a coach, and you just catch yourself in, in awe for for a moment? Like, when you remove yourself from the task at hand of being a coach, is there a place that you go to that the atmosphere is just something that you, you can't really compare it to? Yeah, there's, there's four places for me. Um, obviously, Boston Garden, just because I'm from there. And I don't, I mean, you, you think this, you, you walk in and you say, I must know some people here, right? Cause growing up there. Um, and it's always a, a pretty good environment. Um, Montreal is, you know, it's just like. Uh, it's Mecca. Yeah, it's, there's, there's that, and it's. Um, the, the enthusiasm of the crowd, music, um, and then Chicago. And uh, I actually, there's been, I, I don't know, there was like three instances when I was in Chicago as a visitor. And one was after the one of the wars, 
Um, one was after the Olympics, and I can't remember what, what, what the other one was. But I remember being on the bench in one of the games. One was with the Nordiques. One was with the oh, I was with the Olympic team, and we played uh, a schedule. We played that. I think we played all the U.S. Um, NHL teams. And so, well, the one after the war with the Nordiques, um, the war had ended in just the flags that were in the crowd. Yeah. And Chicago is already a loud place anyway. But the passion when the anthem was being played, that it was even louder than you could imagine. Like. I was the guy I was standing beside. We just looked at each other and we couldn't even hear each other talk. It was that loud. Wow! And then when we were there with the Olympic team playing, it was the same type of atmosphere. So those two two games, uh, in particular, were something that was beyond the norm of your experience of a national anthem. I in 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 the other place that I uh, didn't mention is I get pumped up listening to um, uh, our anthem in our building. Like when I was watching that, uh, when uh, they had, um, I can't think, Kate Smith yeah. and um, that duet that, they, yeah. that she does, Lauren Hart does, like that just gives me chills, you know. And it's the same thing. When she sings the anthem, that's one of my favorite parts of the game. Like uh, that, the, the way she sings it um, and the way the fans respond to it, like I, that gets me it's pumped cool. up to play. It, it is really cool. Last thing I want to ask. What do you decomp- what do you do to decompress? Obviously, you, you sit around during a hockey season. It's very busy to be a coach. You spend a lot of time with video and coaching and thinking about what you're going to do with the team. But like when you get away from the rink, like what are, just, what are some hobbies that you like to? There's not a whole lot of time to do much. Yeah. And um, you know, here, like I, you can count. I haven't had too many off days. Right. So, uh, but believe it or not, the one off day that I had uh, recently, it's just going to a coffee shop, get out of the office, and watch the previous game and that to me is just relaxing you know just to get away from it uh get a different vantage point see some life people walking around yeah um i like to go to movies you know like i enjoy watching uh you know are you a binge watcher like netflix or something like that no no i i i I got away from i had netflix but then redbox became more current than yeah so do you have Ray a pick? Donovan? I gotta gotta go with Ray, Ray Donovan. Ray Donovan. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, are you are you like the kind of person who wants to see all the movies that are up for Academy Awards kind of thing? No, I, yeah. I'm 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 more partial to actors. You know, certain actors I like to see. Well, who do you like? Uh, I like uh, the the Bourne movies, De Niro, you yeah. know, Jack Nicholson. So movies. you like The Departed? Is what oh, you're yeah, yeah. The Departed and uh, the uh, movie with um, Tom Cruise uh, when he's the um, on the stand there. I uh, can't think of the name of it. Guantanamo. Bay. Oh, a few good men. A few good men. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great movie. Yeah. I yeah. usually ask him a question about movies, but I think I already know the answer. Well, of I think, course you I know the answer. This is, this is you're, you're I, I usually ask what the favorite hockey movie is. It's pretty clear. I, you're not going to pull an audible here and say it's not Slapshot, right? Well, let's make a power ranking because there, <laughs> there's I, a pause I, here, and now I'm interested. Yeah, I, I probably. I mean. That's the easy one, but I, I, I like Miracle. Okay. You know, my yeah. kids, my, my one son, he listened to that every time they got in the car. This is a, this is a true story. So um, they they could they had all the lines. You know, they would sit in the car, and they would just repeat it before it even came out. And so um, my son asked a lot of questions about Jim Craig, and, and I told him he's from my, my hometown, and, and I grew up playing with his brother, and my father coached him and all that, like I said. So... Uh, he was he was just starting to play goal and he was going to play his first tournament in Canada, 
So this was like kind of a big thing. And uh, I got in touch with Jim Craig and I told him, um, actually as a secretary, I, I said, can you just get a message to Jim, my childhood friend, and uh, uh, my son's going to play a tournament in Canada. Any chance you could just give him a, a call and, and give him a pep talk? And uh, yeah, he's, he's actually uh, in Puerto Rico. I'll, I'll reach out to him, but he's got business and I, I can't make any promises. So uh, we were in the car on the way to school and uh, the phone rings and he goes, hey, Scotty, it's, uh, it's Jimmy. I said, oh, how you doing? He's oh, good. He goes, I got the message and uh, um, I'm in uh, Puerto Rico, but uh, I want to you know, give your son the call. And uh, so uh, I said, yeah, that's, that'll be awesome. Thanks, Jimmy. So I said, I have the phone. I said, uh, Jimmy, uh, I mean, uh, Eric, uh, Jimmy Craig's on the phone. He's like, he's looking at me like disbelief. So he gets on the phone with him, and his eyes are wide open. He's got a big smile on his face, and you know, I don't, I don't even know what the conversation was. Um, so he hung up the phone. He's like, "Dad, was that really Jim Craig?" And I said, "Yeah." He goes, "How did he do that? Like, how did, like, how did he know?" And 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 so I, I told him. I said, "You had a big tournament." And he said he was going to give you a call, and and uh, so he was, he was all pumped up. He, he was, you know, it, I almost felt like he thought somebody else made the call. <laughs> But um, he, uh, that was like a, it was a really nice gesture for him to take the time out of his work schedule right. in Puerto Rico to give him a call, and uh, it was, it meant a lot. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Scott, we really appreciate, you know, you gave us much more time than we even, you know, expected. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Best of luck to you the rest of the year, and uh, we'll, you know, we'll be, we'll be down there, you know, asking you all the hard questions uh, after right. the games, <laughs> at the press conferences afterwards. So, but we really do appreciate your time. All right. We'll talk about water bottles. Yeah, there you go. That, ladies and gentlemen, is Flyers coach of your team, your town, your Philadelphia Flyers, Scott Gordon. And uh, I think he far exceeded even what our expectations were. We we typically, for interviews, only request about 15, 20 minutes of a guy's time. Right. And not only did Scott Gordon give us 40, but he gave us 40 minutes, and I think he would have kept going. Well, you know, it's interesting, Russ. We, we started this a couple weeks ago. We were saying... When we did those interviews with, with Dale Weiss and with Mike McKenna, again, we asked for 15, 20 minutes, and they each gave, Weiss gave us, I think, 25, and McKenna gave us 30, and yep. it's like, well, wow, we're, geez, we're getting these good conversations. Now Scott Gordon's going 40. I think so either, next... we're, either we're good interviewers, <laughs> and we just lower everyone's stress, <laughs> or people are just looking for a forum yeah, to talk. And, of for... course, there's only one podcast to get interviewed on, and so here we are. Stop. Uh, but no, I, I thought Scott said some really um, interesting things. Um, I was really uh, interested in when he was talking about the difference between coaching in the American League and coaching in the NHL. Um, and almost as if like he you know, wasn't looking to get back to the NHL. I mean, Which is I, why I asked him specifically. Yeah. Because you, you would think that a guy who's coached at this level would be chomping at the bit for the first opportunity he can get to get back into the league because right. most guys are wired like that. It's not just hockey. It's in most sports. If you get a, t- a, a taste of of what the, the top level can be, you want to get back there as soon as you can. But I was really struck by his apparent desire to help develop players yeah. and to get them ready for that next level, almost as this like transitional guy between you know somebody coming up from, what, the, from juniors or from the ECHL and, and getting them really prepared or a draft pick, getting them prepared to move on to the NHL and, and the rewarding kind of experience that is as, a, as almost like a, a teacher of, of the game. Yeah, and I, I think it was interesting because, you know, I, I can kind of see almost his point in the, a, a little bit um, from, this, from the perspective that 
he's a guy who has his has had his greatest success as a coach in the minors, right? I mean, he you know coached Providence in the AHL for such a long time, um, coached in Quebec, coached in Norfolk in the EC when they were an ECHL franchise, um, and you know so he's he did well in those places, and when he got to the NHL. Um, as he said, like it wasn't the thing that surprised me is him saying like how much he didn't like it because they weren't great situations. I mean, the Islanders were a total mess when he was, you know, named the coach there, and he was expected to win with you know his best players being eighteen and nineteen years old, yep. um, in uh, John Tavares and Josh Bailey. Um, and then he also he mentioned he didn't mention him by name, but he said you know I got there and my best player goalie only played five games and then was hurt. And he was talking about Rick DiPietro yep. at the time. Um, so, you know, it's really kind of, you know, interesting to hear how disenchanted he was with that. And then, even more so, you would think if you're not, if you have an opportunity to be an assistant coach in Toronto, which is, like, the best alleged... I mean, it's, it's Mecca. Well, well, it's not Mecca. Montreal's it's Montreal's Mecca. Mecca. But Toronto's got so much of the limelight in yeah, Canada. I mean, yeah. they are such a focal point of, of the of, sport. Of, of the sport, yeah. And he hated that, too. And so it was almost like, you know, I don't, you know if I don't ever get back to the NHL, it's not going to bother me. I enjoy coaching the at the AHL level. So, you know, that to me was the most interesting stuff that he said. But then you can see, like... He's had success here now. You know, Flyers' last 15 games are 12-2-1, including the win Saturday against Detroit. Um, That's the best stretch that he's ever had uh, coaching in the – I think maybe at the professional level. I would have to go back and really look at the minor league teams. But none of his minor league teams were dominant teams by any stretch of the imagination. So a 15-game run of 12-2-1 is is really impressive. And uh, I think it's kind of like – changed him a little bit in the sense that you know maybe now he realizes that you know he can succeed at this level and part of that Russ which was also interesting was when he talked about learning how to deal with younger players yeah you know as a communicator um and he mentioned that TED talk and he and he's you know about you know having to explain the why um you know people your age always want to know why Yep. You know, they, 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 you're, you know, we, uh, when I was your age. It feels like that's always held against people of, no. of, of my age, uh, honestly, because so, so often we're almost hit with this, well, you don't need to know the why. This is the way it's always been and this is how it'll always be. And I think because, you know, you could say that it's, it's because of some generational differences. You could say that it's because, you know, people of, of my age tend to have more information readily available at their fingertips than any generation before it, that we kind of understand the what. And, and it really is picking the brain of whoever it is that's supposed to be educating you on something. It's fair to ask the why. I mean, Darwinism at its finest, you don't give the answer. You're supposed to stimulate the mind. Or not to, yeah, um, it's a Socratic method, not Darwinism. Um, of, you know, it, I don't want you're, the answer. You're inf- way too intelligent I'm just saying, I don't, I don't want <laughs> to just give the answer. The, the whole point here as, a, as an educator is to make sure that you're stimulating the minds of the people you're dealing with. And getting them to, to discover the answers as it pertains to them as well, and that's fine. But I think that I think that the, with the generational differences is that, you know, my generation and generations, many generations before me, um, you know, when in your workplace, you're told what to do, you do it, and you don't ask questions. You say, okay, that's what you want me to do, I'll do it. You know, I'm not going to ask questions as to why you want me to do it a certain way. That's how the company wants it done, and that's what that's you know you do what the company wants, and that's why you're getting paid. I think your generation doesn't have a problem being brazen and saying, well, even though you're telling me to do it this way, I'm not going to do it unless you tell me why I'm doing it this way. Um, 
and that's not I, I don't necessarily know if that's a knock uh, on your generation. Sometimes I guess it could be, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And I think at this level, when we, when we were talking about sports, um, it's certainly fair because, you know, I don't think that youth sports, and we can get on a whole different subtopic with this, but I think I don't think at the youth sport level, the fundamentals of sport are being taught to the, to the degree that they were taught even before my generation. I mean, that, you know, you always heard coaches talk about fundamentals, fundamentals. And they're not taught anymore. Now it's all about your, you know, making your sport a year-round activity and, and wait, you know, being in the best shape possible yep. and training and, you know, whatever the sport is, doing something far better than anyone else can do. And it's all about honing skill. And it's not necessarily about, but this is the rest of the game that matters. Yeah. Um, and so I think a lot of times what you're finding is, is that these players come into the professional ranks – of any sport and and lack some of those fundamentals and so because they weren't taught it so much at a young wasn't really enforced so much at a younger age now they're asking well why yeah and i think that that's fair so what so what gordon is basically saying is is that once he realized how he can communicate with the today's generation of player that he feels like he can make connections with them and and have it work so i mean that was kind of cool and it kind of leads us into what we saw on Saturday. Who, baby. Because he's had conversations with players and, and has gotten a lot of success um, from it. You know, we talked about, you know, the success he had with the conversation with JVR. The JVR has voluntarily submitted and put in front of, of reporters on multiple occasions whenever he's been available in, in post-game scrums. Yeah. So this isn't something where it's just like somebody's trying to whisper this for the media to, to take hold of. Yeah. JVR has gone out of his way to, to point out how Gordon has gone back and done with him. I, I believe it's Couturier, Konechny, or two other guys that have, have mentioned talks that they've had with him as well. Right. And, and how beneficial they've been. That's why I thought it was important to let him know. Because, you, you know, as a, as a coach, you don't necessarily know what your, what your players are saying when you go out in front of the media and, and you are effusive in your praise of it. I mean, it, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry I'm laughing at you. And this is a complete, and I don't know how this is going to even translate onto the Here we go. onto the podcast at all. We'll get back to what we were just about to talk about, but I just got to point out something to you. So we're sitting up here recording this portion of the podcast um, following the Flyers' 6-5 win over the Red Wings, and they are putting down the turf for the Philadelphia Wings, right? Yeah. So they're, they're putting it down, and it, there's a real process to doing this thing. There's a guy out there, and I don't know if you can see him. He's standing along the far, like yeah. near the visiting bench. He's got that this metal thing in his hand, and what they have to do is they have to make sure that it, you know, the turf kind of is flat and and sticks together. Yeah. And so what he does is he's, whatever that thing, that metal thing he's got in his hand, it's like a baton. It's well, yeah, but it's got like this square piece yeah. at the end, okay. and it kind of flattens out the the turf. Okay. Fair enough. The what, what the way he uses it is he braces it against the turf, and then drives his knee with full force into the square part of it repeatedly. And I cannot imagine that this feels good to this guy. <laughs> and he has done it repeatedly now. Little do you know he has titanium knees. It's unbelievable. I'm sitting here watching him and I'm laughing while you're talking because he is literally driving his knee at, at as hard as he possibly can into this metal rod to get this. If anybody's going to go, here he goes. Here goes. Here goes. Watch right now. Here we go. Look, the guy in the khakis along the, by, by okay. the angling sign. Look, yeah, yeah. see him. What? Oh, I'm like, right. Oh. He's driving his knee okay. into that thing. It's, it's the most. This is this is either the best pod we've ever done or, or the worst. It, <laughs> I guess it really depends. Holy it, cow! It, really, uh, it looks like it hurts. Anyway, yes. anyway, back to what we were talking about. <laughs> um, 
so after after this game, you know, if if we're being honest, the entire week has been spent with Shane Gostas Bear as the number one topic on Flyers Twitter. Yep. Now we ha- we said this on the Press Row show for those who watched it. I mean, this is nothing new, but we've been saying that for the better part of a month and a half. Shane Gostas Bear has been a name that has come up multiple times as somebody who could potentially be dealt either at the deadline or in the offseason. And that while he's in the midst of a down year compared to what he was last year, there is a, a thought that maybe either because of his play on the ice or potentially because of some attitude issues off the ice, the organization might not be as high on him as a lot of fans are. And with Chuck Fletcher coming in, nobody really knows where his head's at. Nobody's really gotten to know him well enough to know what it is that he looks for in a player. So Ghost has come up multiple times as being somebody who could be moved at some point. And so that led to some coming out with fervent defense of Shane Gostas Bear. Here's why you could never trade him. Here's why you shouldn't trade him. Here are the traditional counting stats. Here are some super advanced metrics that supposedly show that he's actually not a bad defensive player at all, that he in some ways could even be a plus defensive player, which I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around. Perhaps this is a a moment where super advanced analytics might tell a story in in one way, but the eye test, for as imperfect as it might be, might tell you a very different story. And only when you fuse the two together do you get a real full uh, picture of what a player is. So there there have been pieces written on that side. There have been pieces that I I think more have been people venting frustration about a lack of point production that we saw in this player last year and so I asked him after the game because you know not everybody likes to bring up social media to players because you're going to get usually a canned response where it's you know I don't listen to what people say at the end right and you move on to the next question I kind of felt like well maybe there's a chance he he elaborates so Mm -hmm. not only did he say that he doesn't care what other people say he came out with a very interesting quote and it was one that I mean, it's, it's going to lead the story that I write, but uh, he said, I'm an offensive player. I need to be put into more offensive situations. And I, uh, yeah, let me just, here, here it is again. So he said, I'm an offensive guy and I need to be put in the right offensive situations. I think I got that tonight and it really showed. Now that stood out because he's a defenseman, right? And we always talk about the fact that the ice tends to slant the other way for him, where he's more of an offensive-minded defenseman, and and whether that's a good thing or not, however you want to, you know, do a traditionalist, typically don't love offensive defensemen, whatever. So he says that, and that stands out to both of us because it's interesting that he referred to himself as an offensive player. He didn't really refer to stuff that he's been doing on the back end that might be helping. Right. So then, of course, I have to parlay that to Scott Gordon. And when I asked him, about that quote specifically, Gordon's answer was a really interesting one because it it certainly felt like there is some tension within maybe the coaching staff and the player and not necessarily seeing eye to eye on this. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how, how you want to well, approach I, that. So I, th- I think that the first thing that's interesting is, you know, Gordon said that I talked to him yesterday. So this is obviously something that, you know, the, the team has is recognizing that is there's been an issue with the way he's been playing. And it's not just the last couple of games. It's been a while. I mean, you got to know, Shane Gossespierre on Tuesday in the game in Minnesota played 11 minutes. Yep. I mean, or whatever it was, 11 and change. 
So that's not that's a very low number. That is number six defenseman number in the that's, that's, most important games of the season. That's, okay? Andrew like, Mc, that's like Andrew McDonald. Well, well, not even no, Amex. That's, that's that's like um. It's low. It's that's a, like Christian Follin yes, kind of minutes. It's, it's, it's a low, it's trouble. It's, low it's a troublesome total. number. And okay. and that that's what was so funny. I think about some of the think pieces coming out after yeah. it was. Well, you, clearly there's an issue with the coaching staff. There's clearly an, an issue with the players motor or whatever right. it is that's leading him to play such few minutes but yet there was such ardent support thrown yeah, behind and him. I, anyway, and, anyway. I, and the one thing about that game and I know that, that if you know people who would sit there and, and argue with us right away will say whoa 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 you know they were shorthanded a lot and he doesn't play on the penalty kill okay fine so instead of being instead of playing 20 minutes he should play 16 he yeah. played 11 he played 11 minutes I don't care you would have had to, you would have had to be shorthanded nine times in that game for me for to sit to there sense. and say 11 minutes is, is okay, all right? So, I mean, that's that's the issue. Um, so, the, obviously, Gordon had a conversation with him, and Gordon says that he talked to him. He said his game is fine from the blue line in on the offensive side, uh, actually from the red line in, but that uh, the way he plays in his own end, he's got to be better. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that he said he talked to him about. And it, the, the interesting thing was is there were a few questions. I mean, yours kind of kicked it off, and then there were some follow-ups. I think uh, Jay Greenberg um, from Hockey Buzz asked a couple questions that were related to it as well. And it was, you know, talking about, well, it, it, when, you, when you look at a player like that, like, how, what, does, what do you need him to do? And he said, look, he said, you can't, if you don't want the puck – you can't just dump it off onto your te- dump your problems off to the team your teammate. He said there are better options than throwing a puck across the, the, the um, zone to your partner when he's got a man pressuring him, and then he turns over the puck, and it makes it look like it's his fault, you know. But you got you can't do that, you know. You got to you, you got to go make a better play, um, and until you start making those better plays, you know you're going to continue to run into the problems you run into. And I, what he said back to you, which I thought was was fascinating. Say, oh, you want to be an offensive player? Well, then that starts with you doing the things for yourself, making it easier on yourself in the defensive end, and really saying, I, I, I wish I had the exact quote. I mean, I'm just I'm paraphrasing everything that Gordon said, and we'll have it transcribed a little bit later, and we'll get it up onto the onto the site on CrossingBroad.com. But it was it was really like Gordon saying, Shane, you know, this is where your problem is. Is you're not. It's not translating for you that you have to do certain things in your own end and this whole notion that he's a great breakout player he crit- Gordon criticized him for not being good in the breakout you know so he's not as good a breakout player as everybody wants to make pretend he is just because he can, he's a good puck carrier just because he's a good skater you assume he makes the right decisions he often makes the wrong decisions on breakouts which lead to mistakes and we sit there and say oh well gee it's this is the partner's fault and no wonder why he can't get a you know he's played with everybody and you know it's all the partners are always the problem maybe the problem is the player himself and i don't think that gossip bear is grasping this i really don't i think that there's a disconnect there over what he should the way he should be playing um, I thought the first period of the game against the Red Wings, he was excellent. I thought he, I mean, not just because he scored a goal, but he actually was doing the things that Gordon addressed. And Gordon even said, he said there were a couple of moments in the game that he looked good mm-hmm. um, and, and, and you know, was doing those things. And I thought it was all the first period. I thought his first period was excellent, Shane Gossespierre. 
and scores a goal, jumped up in the play at the right time. And even when he jumped up, there was we talked about it on the Press Row show, there was one instance where he jumped into the play, probably shouldn't have, but then busted his ass to get back um, and, and make a nice defensive play to break up a rush. So everything was going well. Second period was just kind of a meh period. I mean, I wouldn't sit there and say that it was a bad period for him or a good period for him. And then the third period was just breakdown after breakdown after breakdown. It wasn't all Shane Goss's bear by any stretch of the imagination. It was the entire team uh, in the third period. Um, so it's hard to really sit there and identify that, you know, it was something that he was doing wrong. But his success, the, the things that Gordon liked about his game all occurred early. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, holy cow, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that, that we, you know. I didn't expect Gordon to light up. I don't know if it's – maybe didn't saying, light him up, but he – he was he was he, forthright it, and it was, honest it was, about it. Was, it. it was con- constructively critical. Yes, I think it's yes. maybe the the best way to put it. Yes, yeah, I agree. I agree. Which I thought was fascinating. It was so fascinating. It, it 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 is an interesting give and take. I think you can tell with some players on the team, Gordon's message has has str- not struck a nerve in a negative way, but it's hit home. Mm-hmm. I don't know if in Ghost's case, if it struck a nerve. Um, but it, it really was interesting to, to kind of hear that the little bit of, of um, a difference of opinion, maybe. It, it, it was a very fascinating way to, to cap off a game that, quite frankly, almost uh, went terribly, terribly for the Flyers. Yeah. You know, a 5-1 third period lead that they end up blowing with seven seconds left in the game. And, you know, ultimately Travis Konechny goes around the back of the net and, and goes up. Six five. Anthony's laughing because the guy's out here with his his metal thing again, right and ready to, to <laughs> two smash. Guys now. To There's smash two guys him. doing the same. Maybe thing. Maybe the first guy's leg got hurt. Anyway, <laughs> um, it, it was a, a an interesting game. Carter Hart, not the best game of his pro career by any stretch. Well, you know Although I I want to say this about that. I'm going to stop you real quick. I believe we could double check this, but I believe this was the first time Carter faced a team for the second time. And one of the things that I think Detroit really really tried to do against Carter. Not just get traffic to the front of that. That's always that's a goal of every team, right? They always want to get traffic to the front of the net. But they were really trying to do a lot of redirects. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like there were a lot of they were looking for a lot of tip ins, a lot of I mean, even the tying goal was the pass from Mike Green that was redirected by Anthony Mantha past Carter Hart was wide of the net and it was a redirect pass him. So I think that they find that there's Something with, you know, trying to get those kinds of cross-ice passes, get Carter moving, and then redirecting it back past him the other way. And I think that that's, if I think of, of their five goals, I want to say four of them were scored in that manner. Maybe it was only three, but it might, I got to just sitting here thinking about it. So I'm, I'm wondering if that's indicative of the fact that maybe now the second time you get to see a goalie, you see something maybe that you can exploit. Um like in baseball, right? The right. second time you come around a pitcher, as a batter, yep. right? The second time you see a pitcher, right? So I think it's I think it's something like that. And so there's always going to be that, you know, that video study of a goalie and how you beat him, and then the goalie in return has to respond to it. Okay, now Carter saw that that's what they were trying to do to him. What can he do? What can he change to prevent that from happening or prevent more teams from doing that? And what can he do to prevent himself from overcorrecting if, in fact, he starts Correct. in goal on Sunday? Which uh, Talbot, who who we didn't even talk about. Yeah, right. um, yeah. who was acquired as you know the the one for one trade for uh, goalie Anthony Stolarz is not going to be with the team tomorrow. Not available. Not available. So I think he's so, joining uh, the team tomorrow, but he's not available to play. And so it 
you know, I don't know if it ends up being Hart. I don't know when the show's going to drop, so maybe he's already played and he's yeah. answered these questions. But um, it, it will be interesting to see as, as you know, to your point, he comes around and the, the league gets to see him again. Will he find the same success? Will he overcorrect? And, and these are things that, you know, when, when people talked about, do we send him back down to the AHL to go on a Calder Cup run with the Phantoms or, you know, for whatever reason, or is it better to keep him up here? It's, it's better to keep him up here because you need to see how he adjusts. You need to see how the, the coaching staff is going to, you know, prep him with video and, and see, um, you know, what kind of adjustments can be made. Mm-hmm. And then to see how teams believe they're going to be able to be successful against Carter Hart and work on those things with him in practice. So it, it, I think that's like a, a, a kind of fascinating thing that we're going to get to watch play out here over the last 20 or so games is, you know, what exactly do the Flyers do? to get Carter Hart ready for this stretch run. And, God, you know, Pittsburgh lost Saturday night. Flyers are back within four points. I know it's a thing that we, you know, we banter about a lot on the Press Row show, but that Stadium Series game next Saturday is looking like it it might have a little bit more importance to it. I mean, assuming things don't go too sideways one way or the other, there there is a way here where the Flyers might be able to get themselves even with Pittsburgh as of next Saturday or keep themselves within, you know, two to four point range. Mm-hmm. Or if things do go sideways, Pittsburgh really could put the Flyers out of their misery, depending on how you're looking at this season. I mean, they could effectively knock them way down and, and out of the playoff picture. So I think these things are all going to be interesting. But for Carter Hart, I mean, he's he's essentially playing playoff games right now, and he has been ever since he's, you know, gotten the call up and, and this team's gone on the run they have. Yeah, yeah, but... Uh his defense failed him in a lot of ways. Not team defense, not the defensemen themselves. Although Ivan Provorov did have two pretty brutal turnovers that led to two Detroit goals um, in this game. Wasn't Provy's best game, uh, or Sanheim for that matter. Uh, Sanheim uh, blocked a shot and then kind of got himself caught in uh, no man's land that led to the first uh, Detroit goal. So that pairing uh, wasn't their best game for sure. Um, we already talked about Gostas Bear and you know, I thought that the third unit, Gudis and Haig, were just okay. I mean, they weren't anything special, but it was team defense. They just kind of stopped playing. Um, once they got up, they got a 5-1 lead in the third period. Two scored two goals in like a minute and a half at the start of the third period. And it's like, okay, then they just shut it down. They shut it off. Uh, Bear said the team played panicky. He was the only one that said that. I mean, everybody else, I mean, you know, uh, uh, other players, like we talked to Konechny, and Konechny said, um, no, no, I, it just, it, there are things we have to fix, but I don't think we panicked. And Voracek said, no, we didn't panic. Shane Gossesbear said, oh, we panicked. So, <laughs> a difference of opinion. interesting to see, uh, it's becoming a theme. To see how that, uh, that, that turns into, you know, you know, if there's anything that comes from that. But um, they really were an awful team in the third period. Against against Detroit, um, credit them though for coming uh, for coming out in the overtime. Um, they lost the opening faceoff, which is a surprise. Flyers' best faceoff team in the NHL, but were able to get the puck. Um, made one quick change, got Konechny on the ice, and uh, he made some really nice play to to fake out um, uh, the backup goalie at that point. Um, who came in was Jonathan Bernier uh, because uh, Jimmy Howard was pulled at 5-1 and uh, made a nice move to do a wraparound and uh, scored a game-winning goal. And, you know, with Pittsburgh losing and, and, the, and the Flyers winning, they're back within six points of the Penguins for the final playoff spot. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was a crazy game. Um, Flyers can't be too thrilled with it. I mean, it's an ugly way to win, but I mean, it's a win. It's two points. It's an important two points. Um but yeah, there's a lot that has to 
change between that game and what happens on Sunday in Detroit. Um, and I, from what it sounds like now, I got to imagine Carter Hart plays again. And again, by the time people hear this, that that game on Sunday will have be pl- have been played. Um, but I think he has to play again, again at this point. I don't think you can sit there and say, well, we'll just rot, tr- try it out Mike McKenna for this game. It, it's too important of a game. I think you got to go back to Carter. The only other thing I think that was notable this week is the, the trade that um, was made to acquire Cam Talbot from, uh, from Edmonton yep. in exchange for the, the, mammoth, the mammoth goalie himself, Anthony Stolarz. And I lamented on the Press Row show that I had been working on something for a while a profile of sorts about Anthony Stolarz and uh, well of course I didn't put it out on Friday and now it burns me because the guy's been traded but uh, your initial thoughts on the trade I mean we've had a little bit of time to process it you know right now he's sitting on a 4.1 million dollar cap hit for this season you would think that the Flyers knowing that he's a UFA coming up have had talks with his agent about the potential of him re-signing here got to think that somewhere in the three to three and a half million dollar cap hit range over the next two three seasons seems fair for a backup goalie who you know would appear to be comfortable coming in and being the backup to Carter Hart yeah no I think it's a I mean it's you know it's a minor trade um a lot of people were talking about it I I felt like uh, Flyers Twitter went a little bit too uh too far with it um you know people were saying oh you know how do you give up on a young goalie like Stolarz? You never really gave him a chance to bring in this veteran guy who's an unrestricted free agent, blah, 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 blah. Look, the fact of the matter is Anthony Stolarz is at best a fringe NHL backup. Um, that's my opinion, um, but it's also the opinion of a lot of people. Um, and Edmonds- Many people. Yeah. <laughs> Many people tell me. <laughs> no, I know. Thanks. Average goalie. Thanks, Donald. Um, but... Uh, but it's good a good opportunity for him to go to Edmonton where you know they don't really have a number one goalie at this point so maybe you know the Oilers are slowly slinking out of the playoff race surprise um, and so maybe they look at it and say hey here's a chance to give this young guy a chance and you know it's a lottery ticket for them you know if he if if he does well great if he doesn't do well well it was no big deal we needed to get some cap space to bring a player back off of injured off the injured list anyway so it really kind of worked out for for Edmonton but as far as the Flyers are concerned you know, they want to find a veteran goalie to pair with Carter Hart moving forward next season and beyond. You didn't want to go into next season with two young goalies. It's just not it's just not conducive to success because if, if a young goalie struggles, then you're really putting a lot of pressure on another young goalie. You'd rather have a guy who's been around the league for a while. Um, Talbot is one of those guys who's who's thrived as a backup before when he was with the Rangers, uh, backing up Henrik Lundqvist. Did a really good job there. Um, actually, had a very good season in Edmonton last year. Um, uh, this season has not been as good for him, but uh, Edmonton's not really a good team either. So um, that's part of the part of the issue. So I look at it and say, okay, you get, you get the veteran goalie. Um, yeah, he's a UFA at the end of the year, but the Flyers probably don't make the trade unless they, you know, felt like they could sign him beyond this season. Um, and I think that he, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that he's buddy-buddy with Carter Hart, they worked out together all summer long, um, is a good thing. And I think that that benefits the, the, the Flyers. And, you know... It is what it is. It's a backup goalie. Backup goalies change, you know, change all the time. It, it's not going to change much. No, it really, it doesn't make a difference. And if you know, if you felt like the Flyers should have gotten something more by doing a favor for Edmonton because they allowed them to get, what, what more would you have wanted? I mean, seriously, you're trading backup goalie for backup goalie. Like, what more do you want? 
yep. like a seventh round pick. And I, mean, I, I, don't I know. did like conceptually what Stoli brought to the table in terms of his physical size, physical gifts. The problem, of course, is, you know, if people complain that he hasn't been given a fair enough shake at the NHL level, I mean, a lot of that has to do with the fact he just couldn't stay healthy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do think there's something to be said for his perseverance. He started the season as the third goalie on the depth chart at, uh, at Lehigh, in Lehigh Valley. And he worked himself up to being, you know, really established as Carter Hart's backup on this team. And in post-game co- um, combat that he made, so I, I think it was me and Sam Dinellon after uh, uh, the, I want to say it was the Pittsburgh game. Uh, he, he sounded like a guy who was not opposed to coming back and, and being Carter Hart's backup again next year. It was, in, you know, in a strange way, it didn't feel like that typical player is prepared giving the PR point, you know, talking points. It actually felt like, you know, because he's local, he, he grew up in Jersey, that, you know, maybe the idea here for him was it, it's better to kind of be close to home and, and still be in the NHL as a contributor than maybe to go off to a bad situation and try to challenge for a starting spot. I'm not saying that's where his head was at, but those were the comments that he kind of made. So that was interesting. But ultimately, if if you think your whole season's going to hinge on your, your backup goalie, you know, that's not a good sign. Right. I am surprised, though, that you don't seem to think that Michael Neubauer <laughs> was a, uh, a legitimate option to be the backup yeah. next year. I, you know what? It, it's funny. Uh, since we know that Talbot's not going to play Sunday, or, or hadn't played on Sunday, depending on when the show goes out, it's going to be interesting when the Flyers break that record. And Talbot does get a start, and he becomes the eighth goalie in a single season. Well, let's look at the let's look at the schedule, Russ, and maybe we'll we'll make a prediction. We'll see when, like they, when they make that when they break the record to have the eighth different goalie um, play in a game for them this season, um, which would you know break the record that they currently share with the uh, Quebec. Uh, safe to say, he's not going to play Saturday against the Penguins in the Stadium well, Series so game. Tampa Bay on Tuesday. Woof. No, at Montreal Thursday. Probably not. Saturday against Pittsburgh. Then next week you go Buffalo and then back-to-back Columbus and New Jersey. I'll be honest with you. It might not beat all that New Jersey Devils game. Tampa I wouldn't be opposed to because I don't think you beat Tampa regardless of who's in net. And so I'm not so sure that now unless your idea is let's get Cam Talbot in in a position where he can find early success with this team, then fine. Let's Let's say. You don't want him to come in in relief of Carter Hart if Carter Hart gets shellacked because... Tampa Bay goes off and does what Tampa Bay does best, which is put the puck in the back of the net a lot. All right, so the Penguins also play Sunday. They play the Rangers at home. Okay. Um, let's just say they lose that game, okay. and the Flyers beat Detroit. Yep. Now you're They're four points back of a playoff. Four now, aren't they? No, six right now. Are they? Yes. Uh, they were eight going into the game. My so bad. Okay. Two, right? So let's say you get to within four, and now you got a home game against Tampa. Are you really not going right, to play fine. Carter Hart fine. at that point? I mean, right. So, right. so my thought process there is that I, you don't think he plays until the next week, March first against the Devils. That's, that's my prediction on Cam Talbot's first action as a fl- first start as a Flyer. I mean, mm. Hart could get pulled. You never know. And, and Talbot against Tampa, well, Maybe. against anybody, you yeah. never know, right? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they played. You know what? I'll, I'll say Cam Talbot plays on Thursday against Montreal. In Montreal, yeah. I can see it. That's why I think it's going to happen. We'll see. It could. Hold us hold us to these predictions, I guess. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, now, of course, I can't do who's that flyer because we're sitting side by side, and you'll look at the screen, you'll cheat as you typically do, even though you're 
in a different uh, yeah. city, state, whatever, when uh, we usually record. The last so, who's that flyer, you asked me who shared so, my birthday with me, and it happened to be the guy who I used to have cake with together on our birthday. That's so sweet. What kind of cake would you have? Never <laughs> mind. Doesn't they, matter. Whatever Doesn't they matter. bring into the office. All right, so we have uh, two five-star reviews since the last time we did the episode. And the nice thing, Anthony, is, of course, every time an episode goes out, we're getting five-star reviews over on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, wherever you want to leave those uh, reviews. So let's get to those two. Uh, the first one is by Bretsky89, who says, Just what I'm looking for, five stars. By far my favorite Flyers podcast and one of my top five overall. It's exactly what I look for in sports talk. Information and talk, not hot takes and just to hear yourself, or talking just to hear yourself. Smart and informative is not a bad thing, and you gentlemen provide that. Keep doing what you're doing. Brett B. Thanks, Brett. Thanks. Brett B? Is that Brett Brown? Could it be the Sixers coach, Brett Brown, looking to keep up on the Flyers? You want to read that? Reread it again with a Boston By accent? far my favorite Flyers <laughs> podcast. And <laughs> one right, of enough. my top five enough. overall. Enough. Okay. That, I wanted to say something about that. What? One of top five overall. Who has time to listen to more than one or two podcasts? I'm subscribed to 23. I listen to them all on two times speed. Anthony got in my car. This is a fun little story. Was, I was we were getting ready. This, we were getting ready to go down to uh, interview Gordon. And... Uh, Anthony gets in the car. I'm listening to the Low Post. It's an NBA podcast. And I'm listening to it on two times speed. And honestly, this is how, how screwed up my brain is now. When I was listening to it, I actually thought that I might have put it down to like 1.4 because it, it was going almost too slow for how I'm used to hearing a, a, a two times speed podcast. You got in the car and you said... It sounded like this. I'm like, what the frig are you listening to, Russ? What is this nonsense? The weird thing now is if I go back and listen to a show on regular speed, it sounds like everybody's just like moving a molasses. I, I don't know what to do about it. Uh, and the next five-star review is by Coaster Fan, who said, New listener, I love it! Exclamation point. Woo! I typically listen to BSH and stick to Hockey for Flyers podcasts, but I learned about y'all from the Roundtable special and decided to give y'all a listen. Absolutely loved it, and now I'm subscribed and will be a regular listener. Awesome. Well, thanks, Coaster fan. That's good stuff. See that? I mean, if he ends up being the only... Or she. We don't know. Or she. That's We're true. We're not judging. That's true. We're Could not be. assuming, Anthony. Yeah. Yeah, you're a good point. Um, but if uh, this listener ends up being the only listener that we picked up from that roundtable... It will have been worth it. It will have been worth it, yes. So, of course, we implore the listeners of this show, the thousands across the Delaware Valley, to continue to spread the word about Snow the Goalie since... Well, heck, Anthony, our listener numbers have grown exponentially since the start of the season, and of course, they should, because we are the only Flyers podcast. And we had, uh, you know, we've had players, we've had personnel, we've had former Flyers GM Ron Hextall, and of course, we have current Sixers, or Sixers, current Flyers head coach Scott Gordon on the program. And wait till they, wait till the crowd hears about what uh, my next uh, venture is to get a guest. Ho, ho, ho! It's got to be a good one. I can promise well, you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, with that, I think it's time to wrap up this yeah, episode. Yeah, but I want to say this goal. last go, thing to, coast, to Coaster Fan. I, I now want to know if it's a he or she. Okay. So what I want Coaster Fan to do is, is reach out. Come on to the Press Row Show. Uh, find us on during, during a Flyers home game. Find Russ and I either on my Twitter account, which is at Philly, or Russ's Twitter account uh, at uh, Joy on Broad, or on the Crossing Broad Facebook page. Just log in and say, hey guys, it's me, Coaster Fan, and let us know. <laughs> That's lovely, Anthony. All right. So uh, make sure you go check out the other shows on the Crossing Broad Podcast Network. Of course, Anthony and Bob host Crossed Up, a Phillies podcast. Could the Phillies be making a big move? 
According to, uh, was it, CBS Sports' uh, Jim Bowden, who I guess also appears on the MLB Network, they said that the uh, Flyers, or the Flyers, oh my God, get me out of here, the Phillies and Bryce Harper might be rounding third base on a contract. So wouldn't that be exciting, Anthony? Anthony and I sat at lunch, and uh, he had his ear up to uh, the uh, the speaker on his phone. I had headphones in, trying to listen to a replay of the Andy McPhail press well, conference. That, to the, uh, the press conference that we, uh, uh, whatever. And so uh, I'm guessing he and Bob are going to have a new episode coming out soon. Uh, Crossing Broadcast will be back next week with myself and Kevin Kincaid. And uh, I've been holding off Phil Kaidel for a while. The scheduling never works out, but Crossing Broadcast will release a new episode or Phil might hunt me down and destroy me. And, of course, Kevin Kincaid had a, uh, an interview with uh, Matthew Doyle, who's somebody that writes for uh, MLS.com. So it's always soccer in Philadelphia if you want to catch up on your Marco Fabian news Mexican international who signed with the uh, Philadelphia Union. Go over there and check that out as well. Wasn't uh, he trading jerseys with um, Tobias Harris? Look at you! That's good cross sport knowledge out of you. Alright, so go check out those shows and of course we'll be back with we'll be back, surprise you, Russ? We'll be back with the Press Row show on what, Tuesday? <laughs> Tuesday as the, as the uh, Flyers play host to the Tampa Bay Lightning and of course, Saturday the Flyers and, and Penguins have the Battle of the Keystone State as they uh, take the ice at 8 o'clock on Saturday night. But Anthony and I will be around. Which, by the way, one other thing I should point out about that game. Um, the current forecast for next Saturday is heavy rain. That would be bad. They, the league has already said that if the game is uh, has to be canceled with bad weather, they will play on Sunday. Okay. So it will be on the 24th the next day. And so, that could be a mess, my friends. So uh, keep your eyes peeled to CrossingBroad.com because, of course, we'll be doing all kinds of write-ups. We might go down. There's a couple media things that are related to the uh, Stadium Series game this week, so we'll do our best to get down there and cover any uh, any news and notes that are coming out of camp. And If you're going to be there on Saturday, drop a line to uh, Anthony and myself. Maybe we'll meet up in a parking lot outside of the link or something there because there's nothing better than, than uh, meeting the people who uh, listen to the show and check out the Press Row show. So uh, we'll talk to everybody on Tuesday via Anthony's Periscope or my Periscope at Ant San Philly, at Joy on Broad or the Crossing Broad Facebook page. And then again next Saturday for the uh, Flyers and Penguins game. So for Anthony, I'm Russ. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you again very soon.